<clears throat> so uh, this is the third in a series of sermons on, on basic Christian beliefs and practice. And what, you know, what does it mean to be in a relationship with God? What does that look like? And what does that ask of me? And how does that shape me and form me? We're asking these basic questions and going back and, and covering again these foundational truths because we live in a day and in a moment that feels out of control to so many of us in so many ways. And often the things that we want to latch on to uh, are the things <laughs> that are beyond our control. And so I don't know about you guys, but most of my conversations these days have to do with health and, uh, and politics. You know, get together, you talk about who you know that's had it or might have it or is getting better from it and so on and so forth. Uh, and then you get together and you talk about before the election, the election, after the election, and, and it's just all-consuming. But these things are beyond our control, and we were never invited to trust in our health, for goodness sakes. We're all going to die. Uh, we were never asked to trust and place our hope in uh, kingdoms of this world. They're all going to fall. We're asked to place our hope and trust in Jesus. Christ, God who's come to be with us and lived for us and died for us and rose again for us so we don't have to fear death because there is life eternal in him. We don't have to worry about the kingdoms of this world. Certainly there can be greater good or greater harm done through them, but ultimately we trust in the kingdom of God, which will come to be all in all. That's why we're going back and looking at these basic things so that we can ground ourselves in what's really true and what's really real and you know, not get... Lost in cable news, right? And so, a few weeks ago, we began with encounter. Along with Isaiah in the temple, and Moses at the burning bush, and Paul on the road to Damascus, and John on the Isle of Patmos, we recognize that even we, when we come together in worship, the pattern of our worship is based on these patterns of encounter in the Scripture. So that when God encounters us, we recognize His great holiness and so by necessity, also um, our sinfulness. And as we are undone in that moment, we also recognize that God, by his grace, comes to us and puts us back together again, uh, gathers us into himself, and then also sends us on a mission to participate in what he's doing in the world, to be uh, messengers who go out sharing his good news and his love, who are willing to Pray for those who persecute us. Who does that? Cable news doesn't do that. Christians do that. Um, those who can love our enemies. Who does that? Republicans and Democrats don't do that. Christians do that. That's what we're being shaped into as, as we're undone and put back together and then sent into the world. And then, uh, what was our right response to this? What was an appropriate response to this? Well, it was, it was faith, right? That's what we talked about last week. Faith. Recognizing that at some point, I must be able to say, I believe. But that faith isn't a solitary endeavor. Um, faith that is content with itself is not true. Perhaps it's faith, but it's misguided faith. It's not faith uh, in obedience to God. It's faith for ourselves that we can just make ourselves feel better. I faith has to become we faith. And so I believe, but we believe. And as we do that, we recognize that neither of those are the most important, but that Christ's faith, the, the author and perfecter of our faith, his faith is most important for us. 
Because ours vacillates, ours is strong one day and weak the next, and sometimes moment to moment. But Christ's faith is the one that saves us, and we trust in Him in all things. And trusting in Him, we recognize, after this encounter with the living God, responding in faith, grounded in Jesus, we recognize that the one we worship, the one we've encountered, the one in whom we place our faith is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And so as we confess the triune God, uh, we discover life. And as we live in Him, we are sent into the world to share that life. So today, if you want to follow sort of the, I mean, there is a reason behind this theological progression. Uh, there's encounter, there's response of faith, there's Christ and the Trinity. Now we're kind of covering um, justification and sanctification, though we might not say those terms a whole lot this morning. That's, that's the move we're making. Uh, justification being being set in right relationship with God. We all recognize that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, so we trust in Jesus and His work on the cross, right? His life given up for ours, which has set us right in relationship with Him. Um, and yet we can also recognize, even in being set right with God, that we also... Well, none of us are perfect. I know, I know most of you pretty well, and you know me fairly well, and none of us are perfect, are we? Uh, so there's still the process by which what we have received becomes actual in our lives, and that's the sanctification part. That's the being made holy and being transformed part. And the beauty of it is, this has all come together this first Sunday of Lent. Lent being this 40-day season that precedes Easter, during which time we are called to remember with dust upon our foreheads that we are dust and to dust we shall return. We're, we're called to contemplate our mortality and recognize because of that that we have things in our lives we need to deal with. And so it's also a time of repentance, um, a, t- a time to look back at your last year even and say, hey, what are the, what are the patterns that have worked their way into my life? Or what are the beliefs or actions or thoughts or tendencies that have worked their way into my life that are not in keeping with what God wants for me? And now we've got 40 days we can begin to set those things aside and ask by God's grace to be set free from the sin which binds us and clings so closely, remember last week, that seeks to drag us down and diminish us um, and enchain us. This 40 days is going to help set us free from that. And so it's interesting, this 40-day period is fashioned upon the 40 days mentioned in our scripture this morning. Uh, 40 days, uh, when Jesus went out into the wilderness, immediately following his baptism, and was tempted by Satan. So that's, the, that's the passage we're dealing with this morning. I'm going to include the baptism just to kind of set the scene a little bit. Uh, because it's going to connect, actually, with some of the temptations that he faces. And so, too, we can recognize that after we have been gathered up and given the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when we were baptized and received a new family name, that that's not the end of the process. It's, it's now the beginning. Um, 
knowing that now our sin no longer defines us, uh, but Christ defines us, and because of that, we can be set free. So I invite you to listen carefully, listen well, uh, to Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. It is the story of Christ's baptism and his temptation in the wilderness. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the waters, immediately he saw the heavens torn open and the Spirit of God descending upon him in the form of a dove. And a voice spoke from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this is a sermon in two parts, really. Uh, we kind of set the scene, connected with what we're building on here. Uh, but this morning, we're going to take a look at Christ's uh, temptation in the wilderness. And we're going to pull from Matthew, because Mark doesn't actually include the three temptations listed in Matthew. So we're going to pull from Matthew, and we're going to look at the temptations of Christ and his response to those things. Uh, recognizing in him uh, that he is the one who has lived a sinless life. He did not succumb to the temptations, but also recognizing that as he responds to them, he gives us a pattern whereby we can enter into his life a bit further and begin to change our response to the same temptations that Satan presented Jesus, the same temptations that he presented Adam and Eve in the garden, the same temptations that we face every day. And after we kind of work through some of that, I'm going to give you, and I'll also email this to you this week, I'm going to give you a very straightforward, like practical way that you can enter and engage with Lent this year, seeking to set aside some of that sin which clings so closely and discover, pray for, and discover the grace of God in your life. Two parts, right? So some of the scriptural basis, and then I'm going to give you, I mean, it's not a homework assignment. It's more like, and you might say, this, this sounds like an impossible mission, but it's kind of like Mission Impossible. It is the assignment, if you choose to accept it, here will be uh, the way forward for you. Okay, so let's begin with Christ in the wilderness. And before we get to the temptations, I want you to notice this little line that maybe we don't pay attention to a whole lot. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. What? I mean, does that just mean he's in the wilderness? I mean, yeah. But the wilderness means something in the scriptures, doesn't it? It's primarily that place where God shapes us and forms us and molds us. Most famously, right, is Israel. After they were, let's put it this way, baptized as the Red Sea parted, and as they moved through the water and got to the other side, immediately where were they? In the wilderness. For how long? 40, there's that number again, 40 years. 
And it was the time where they were shaped and fashioned, learned to trust, learned to have faith. They got out there and said, couldn't we go back to slavery? At least our bellies were full. Which actually has to do with the first temptation of Jesus. They cry out because the water is bitter and they are bitter. And then a piece of wood, which the saints say was the cross, was tossed into the water and it was made sweet. So anyway, you can see how the wilderness is this pattern by which God shapes us. Of course, Jesus um, gathers all of Israel and all of humanity into himself. So that when he passes through the waters, just like Israel did through the waters of the sea, as Jesus passes through the waters of the Jordan, he's immediately taken to the wilderness where for 40 days... He recapitulates, relives out the story of Israel himself. But rather than falling into sin or uh, wandering from God or crying out and complaining to God, he trusts. And both sets Israel right and the rest of us as well. Uh, so we can see, so that, there's, there's the wilderness theme. Uh, but the, so the wilderness isn't just the desert or something. It's also a symbolic move it, it's the place where things happen. So neither are the angels or the wild animals just angels or wild animals here. There's meaning to be gleaned from their presence. And it takes us all the way back to the garden. You remember that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And we talked uh, at some length a couple months ago about how human beings aren't located in the heavens above or in the earth beneath. But God takes the dust of the earth. And then breathes into it the breath of the heavens. And so humanity is this unique combination of heaven and earth together. And heaven is to do with, um, with spiritual meaning, with principles, with maybe, say, ideas. And the earth has to do with potentiality and some degree chaos. But when they come together at God's hand, humanity is born. And so we take the heavens into our lungs and give it meaning in our bodies and live with meaning and purpose. And we also take the, the dust of the ground and put it to God's service. And that chaotic potential is ordered and comes under the truth of God's directive. Well, you'll notice in the creation story, the heavens and the earth are first, and then God does some other stuff, create, first creating spaces, and then he fills those spaces. And so he creates the heavens above, and what does he put in them? Well, stars, for one, also representative of the angels and the angelic host who inhabit heaven. He creates the earth and causes dry land to appear, and then he fills it with what? With animals. So here in the beginning, the angels are, are, are symbolic of heaven, the animals symbolic of earth. Jesus is right in the middle, just like Adam is right in the middle of heaven and earth, combining them. Jesus is out in the wilderness. The devil is going to be tempting Jesus, who is not an angel, pure rationality or intellect, disembodied. No, Jesus has a body. Let's get that clear. But neither is he only body, like the animals following his passions wherever they lead him. When animals are hungry, what do they do? They eat. When they're angry, what do they do? They fight. When they're scared, what do they do? They run. They're subject to their passions. They aren't governed by anything higher. But, but Jesus, as the one who uniquely 
as the human, the human being, has a body but also joins to it heavenly meaning and purpose and truth, Jesus shows us a setting right of where Adam went wrong. Does that make sense? Uh, it's actually really beautiful and amazing, all the, all the interplay and connections that are happening here. So let's get to his temptations then. Jesus is tempted. We're pulling from Matthew now. His first temptation, uh, by the way, Satan is tempting him to fall prey to his baser instincts, his passions, his d- the desires of the body. There's a picture of the earth, right? The dust from the ground. And to ignore uh, the capacity of God's truth to inform and govern those passions. So the first one is uh, that he would turn the stones into bread. Do you remember this? Turn the stones into bread. Be full. Don't be, he's been out there fasting in the wilderness 40 days, and he's hungry. Secondly, uh, he takes him up to the top of the temple. And he says, Jesus, cast yourself headlong off the temple. Because God says he won't let the anointed's foot strike a stone, that the angels will come and catch you, and you will know for certain that you are God's son. And thirdly, he takes him up to a high mountain so that he can see all the kingdoms of the world and says, if you will only bow your knee to me, you can have dominion and authority and lordship over all that you see. The whole world will be yours. Those are the temptations. Um, Let's take them one by one and kind of work through and consider how often we're tempted in similar ways. So first, Jesus is tempted to turn stones into bread uh, because he is hungry. I mean, otherwise, that was a silly way to tempt him, right? But he is actually hungry. I think our tendency sometimes is to envision Jesus as like Superman or a Marvel comic figure who isn't really human. He's Superman. He can save the world. Of course, he's Superman. So he doesn't get hungry in the way that I get hungry or doesn't suffer pain in the way that I get pain or doesn't have indigestion, right? I mean, Jesus has a body just like yours. And when he doesn't eat, he gets hungry and it hurts. And his biochemistry changes such that maybe he's more inclined to be irritable. Did any of you get hangry? (laughs) Yeah? Right. So Jesus deals with all of those things and Satan comes to him and says, turn these stones uh, into bread. The temptation is to be full. To have no lack. To be complete in himself. Making bread is a spiritual activity. We won't get into that. But Satan tempts him to make bread not to offer to God, but to consume simply for himself. To be satisfied with himself. To turn inward to himself. Now it's interesting that when Satan tempted Adam and Eve, he tempted them with fruit, isn't it? To eat something. To take of this and eat it. God had created humanity not so that we would be self-sufficient. Not so that your life would never lack anything. He made you so that you cannot be self-reliant. So that there's always something that is meant to be beyond you. You may eat of every tree in the garden except this one. And they weren't content. 
They wanted the one thing that they lacked. Now, maybe it's good to think right here about the places in your life where you don't find yourself being content. Where you find a hunger there that you, you just haven't figured out how to satiate. A hunger that sticks with you. A feeling in your gut that despite all the bread that you have stuffed in doesn't quite seem to go away. You know, perhaps, um, perhaps you can think in terms of relationships. Uh, jumping from one to the next, to the next, to the next, hoping that eventually there will be someone who can fulfill you in a way that removes that hunger, but still yet there's something gnawing away from the inside. Maybe it has to do with, um, with money, right? I mean, that's just a, such an easy temptation to want to acquire more and more and more money and then to make money on your money and make money on that money, but there's never like it enough. The object is always to get more. And you, and you feast on that for a while, but... It's never complete. You never feel full. There's always an emptiness that needs to be stuffed with a little more cash or whatever. Or maybe it's food. You know, hey, we, a lot of us deal with difficulty in our lives by, well, we recognize that emptiness, so I'm going to fill up my body with something to eat. And we turn to food as a means to, well, at least feel okay for a bit. Where are the places in your life that you've noticed aren't ever really full? Maybe those are some places to which you could attend and recognize a temptation there to turn stones into bread. God created us with some limits so that we would be turned by all of those limitations we'd be turned by all of those hungers towards Him, the true source of our longing, the true source of our hunger. Jesus responds, man was not created by bread alone, or relationships alone, or money alone, or food alone, but we were created to live by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. There's a source of food, of, 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 um, of nutrition, that allows us to really live that can only come from God. That was the first temptation. Uh, the second was to go up on this, um, on, the, on the top of the temple and to, um, you know, go skydiving, basically. Uh, he climbs to the top of the Empire State Building and says, well, there you go, jump off. See what happens. God has said, if you're the anointed, you know, Jesus quotes scripture, man eats by bread alone. You know, doesn't eat by bread alone. And so the devil, knowing Scripture pretty well himself, probably better than us, seeks to twist it. And says, okay, well the Scriptures say God won't let His anointed strike His foot against a stone, but He'll send His angels to catch you. Let's see how that works out. That was the next temptation. What you think about it is a, is a temptation to surety. Which is also just another form of doubting God's promise. Be absolutely certain. Don't live by faith. Live by sight. If God 
promises something to you. You shouldn't take him at his word, but you should make him put it into action. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to me the location of this temptation, being at the top of the temple, being the closest that humanity could get to God's presence. The place God had promised to be present in the earth was in the temple. But also, uh, temporally, where did this temptation happen? This temptation happened immediately after Jesus was baptized. The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. But what happened right before that? The voice spoke from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Satan says, Are you sure God said you were his beloved? Are you, sh- are you really sure? That's who you are? Let's make God prove it. In the same way in the garden, this, you know, the, the serpent, the accuser, the Satan came to, to even said, Did God really say don't eat of the fruit of this tree? Where are those places where God is, where you find that whisper, that echo in your mind, in your heart, in your life? Did God really say this was so bad? Did God really say that I shouldn't behave in this way, act in this way? Did God really say social media was fair game for God's judgment in my life? Which, by the way, is one of those places that never fills us up. Who can ever stop scrolling, right? It's never enough. Did God really say that? And Jesus says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Often those those places where the whisper enters in have to do with our identity. Are you really God's beloved? Does God really love me? Can I trust that? Is God really pleased with me? Or do I need to find approval in all these other places and spheres? The third temptation has to do with with dominion, with power, with lordship. Satan takes Jesus up to this high mountain so that he can see all the kingdoms of the world and says, you know, if you will but bend your knee to me, if you will bow before me and worship me, then you can have dominion over all of these things. Which, interestingly, is what God gave to humanity to start with, isn't it? God's already given us dominion, hasn't he? He creates the world. He places humanity in it. He says, you are going to have dominion, power, authority here. He na- even, um, God even seems that he wants to complete his work of creation now through us as Adam names the animals, and as he calls Adam and Eve to cultivate the earth and then to fill it with more images of God so that we would cover the whole earth and govern the beasts of the field and the creation that he has made, joining now God's heavenly purposes to this earthly reality, representing God within the creation, offering the creation back to God. He's given us this call to dominion and power, but it was always a secondary authority, wasn't it? As stewards over a creation that didn't belong to us, belongs to God, but over which we've been given authority. Now it's interesting, when the devil tempts Jesus, what happens? He tempts him with authority, something God has already given humanity. 
The only difference is, to whom will Jesus bend his knee? Or to whom will you bend your knee? God has given you spheres of authority in your life, places where you exert dominion or power or authority in different ways. The question is, as you carry out that authority and as you govern in those places, who will you be kneeling to? Because we always have to kneel to someone, God or the devil. It's pretty black and white in that respect. Except for this caveat. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Those are the three temptations. Jesus says we're to worship the Lord our God and him only will we serve. Those are the three temptations. Christ's response Perhaps you can begin to ask yourself, in your own life, where do you see those things coming into play? A desire to be full, to be filled up, to have no lack. A, a desire to put God's promises to the test and really question if actually that does really apply to you in the positive aspects and in those aspects that would pertain to judgment. And then finally, like, hey, how are you exerting the authority that you do have in the spheres of your influence? And who are you serving as you do that. Now I'd like to give you something really, hopefully tangible and practical and routine that you can begin to work into your life as a means, these 40 days of Lent, of seeing change in your own heart, in your own life, in your relationships, your family, community. That starts with you. So here's the pattern. If you can remember breakfast, lunch, and supper, which I think most of you can, then you can remember how to engage in this practice. It comes to us from a guy named Ignatius, uh, St. Ignatius in the church. And he, had, he developed uh, a system of, of examine, of examination, personal examination. And here's how it worked and played out. Uh, let's imagine, just for, to make this more concrete, let's imagine that the one thing that you sense you need to work on in your life is anger. And so that's going to be the thing for Lent that you seek to give over to God. Ignatius says, when you wake up in the morning, as you open your eyes and you become awake and aware in the world, the first thing you do is say, I guess, good morning, Lord. And then you say, would you grant me the grace this day to overcome the anger that lies sinfully in my own heart? That's what you do when you wake up. And then you live... Your morning out, you go through the course of your day, and you come to lunch, and you eat lunch, and then after lunch, you examine yourself. You take a look. How did, how's it going so far? Specifically, as it has to do and as it pertains to this passion, this root passion of anger. What do animals do when that passion's unrestricted? They fight. They lash out. But that's not how we're called to be. How's it going so far? Uh, Confess those things you need to confess. Ask forgiveness for the things you need to confess or forgiveness for. And then ask for grace again throughout the course of the day. Notice this repetition of asking for God's grace because it's not just your own struggle. It's God's grace that allows us to emerge victorious. And so you work out the rest of your day. You live your afternoon and your evening and then you have supper. And then after supper, you examine yourself again. And you take a look at the things that went well and what didn't as it pertains to anger. And you write those things down. And after... A week or two, maybe after a day or two, you'll begin to notice patterns 
oh, that's where anger just over and over and over again shows up. At 11.52, when I'm trying to transition from work to lunch or something, you know, whatever it is. Then you begin to notice those patterns emerging. Now, what patterns are we asking uh, to, to see emerge? Um, if you've got the three-part section down that we, you would continue day after day through Lent, how do you examine yourself? There's an important question, isn't it? How would I actually do that? So Ignatius, as he's putting this thing together, turns to a prayer that you know very, very well and you've prayed this morning. Most merciful God, I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by the things that I have done and by that which I have left undone. I have not loved you with my whole heart and mind and strength or my neighbor as myself. And the the prayer of confession continues. Do you catch the part? I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. So after lunch, you would have three categories to look through, to sort through. Thought. What what thoughts did I have? What seemed to instigate or produce that anger? How did I respond? What words issued forth from that anger? How did I speak to the people around me? Was I short? And then, because as we well know, we don't just send anger out into the world through words. We communicate very well in various other means. You know, did I just frown at somebody? Or turn away? Or how did did my body language, you know, communicate that anger? Uh, Or did I just sit and stew with it and turn it over, over, and over, and over like, you know, uh, Gollum, told you about Lord of the Rings last week, with his precious, and he just cultivates that anger, and he doesn't, you know, it just begins to sit there like a big knot in your stomach, getting ready to explode. You know, what did you do? Thoughts, words, and deeds. Send against you in thought, word, and deed. And I'll, I'll actually give you, when I send this email out, I'll include a little word on each of those, like how to break that down even further if you'd like. So three times a day, thought, word, and deed. And you can fill in for anger, whatever your particular passion is, whatever the thing is that you need to be getting rid of. But I want you to imagine for a minute. Can you imagine? At the end of 40 days, even. What your life could look like. If you were free of that sin which for your whole life has seemed to cling so closely. You didn't know what to do with it or how to get rid of it or how to offer it and turn it over to God. Could you imagine if you began experiencing freedom from that, the chains began to get a little looser or the the cords began to fray and your life was beginning to experience a bit of freedom. Could you imagine if, if those things that you've been trying to fill your life with were no longer the source of your hunger, but suddenly you saw that God was filling you up, actually, in your life. Could you imagine if if you discovered that your faith and your trust in the living God was growing? That you were exercising dominion and authority in the areas and spheres of your influence in ways that don't bend the knee to Satan and to the passions and drag you down and tear you apart and hurt the people around you. But suddenly you're, you're caring for those areas as stewards and those people and relationships in ways that build up 
and look like the kingdom of God now on earth. Could you imagine if that happened to you? To us? That's not rhetorical. Could you imagine it? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.